I want to ask you a question. Are you an enthusiastic person? You know, when successful people are asked, what is one of the absolute necessities of success in any endeavor, in any area of life, many of them single out enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Here are what some fairly well-known people have said about enthusiasm and the need for it. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is the triumph of enthusiasm. Nothing great was ever achieved without it. Talent, resources, uh, ability are nothing without enthusiasm to see a goal through. Charles Schwab, president of Carnegie Steel and U.S. Steel in the late 1800s, said, A man can succeed at almost anything for which he has unlimited enthusiasm. Pretty important. How much enthusiasm do we have? What kind of goal are we striving for? Walter Chrysler said the real secret of success is enthusiasm. William Blake, the English poet and painter, said mere enthusiasm is the all in all. Now that's pretty important from someone who was a success in their area of life. Bruce Barton, advertising executive and congressman in the late 1800s, born in the late 1800s, said if you can give your son or daughter only one gift... Let it be enthusiasm. Now, in the church, we might say there's something a little bit more than important than enthusiasm, and of course that is a love for God's way of life and God's spirit, ultimately. But for people who don't know God, they still understand that energy and drive and focus is a key to accomplishing anything. Enthusiasm. Of course, I like the Green Bay Packers growing up in Wisconsin, and Vince Lombardi was big on enthusiasm too. He said, if you aren't fired with enthusiasm, you will be fired with enthusiasm. (laughs) So that's kind of blunt, but well put. Anyway, you know, these people's experiences count for something. They saw human beings. They lived life. They understood what drove people. They understood how accomplishments are made. Why is enthusiasm so important, and what does it have to do with us in our spiritual life? Does it have any role in your life and mine? I'd like to talk about that today, godly enthusiasm. If you'd like a title, my title is Godly Enthusiasm. The American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language defines the word this way. Enthusiasm, great excitement for or interest in a subject or cause, a source or cause of great excitement or interest. Fairly common uses, that's pretty obvious, right? But there is another more ancient use of this word that we get from the Greeks, and that is religious fanaticism. Did you know that? Enthusiasm originally meant religious fanaticism. It, of course, today it doesn't have anything to do with religion. It doesn't have to. <clears throat> you can be enthusiastic about cooking or decorating or underwater basket weaving, whatever. Um, it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with religion. And a lot of folks are enthusiastic about a whole bunch of different things. But that really was the original context of the word. Interesting when we think about the time we're living in that we are entering a time 
when religious enthusiasm is on the rise. Mr. Uh, Dr. Doug Winnell, in a recent article in the Tomorrow's World, in an article entitled The Return of Religion, explained this. He said, The new wave of religious activism is driven by serious believers of many faiths, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and others, all of whom are adamantly opposed to many of the values commonly accepted by modern secular society. French researcher Gil Capel, in his book The Revenge of God, has carefully documented this largely unexpected turn of events. The simultaneous appearance of fundamentalist religious movements on a global scale has major implications for the 21st century, which, according to Huntington, is, quote, dawning as a century of religion. And even as was mentioned in the the announcements, we are seeing that in the riots going on as we speak, actually. There was news, of course, uh, based on and and from the cartoon that was was, uh, printed in the Danish uh, newspaper uh, just this morning. There's an article coming out of Pakistan. A Pakistani cleric announced a $1 million bounty for killing a cartoonist who drew the Prophet Muhammad as thousands joined street protests after Friday prayers. Of course, there were other riots, other places, Libya uh, and, and, and others. He says, whoever has done this despicable and shameful act, he has challenged the honor of Muslims. This is a unanimous decision of of." by all imams of Islam, that whoever insults the prophets deserves to be killed, and whoever will take this insulting man to his end will get this prize, end quote. That's what we are seeing on the, not just on the horizon, but in the news today. In the Muslim world, of course. But we know it's not just going to be the Muslim world, it's also the mainstream professing Christian world as well. Notice in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11, it's prophesied that there will be a coming religious system, a revival of an old religious system, but this will have at its root a fanaticism about religion. Revelation 13 and verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Forced worship at the point of a gun, so to speak. It's going to happen. People who are so whipped up into a frenzy of fanaticism to worship this false god, this Man who is leading the system. That's ahead in our world and not that far ahead. We know that. It's real. That's part of the warning. We are trying to get out to the world, and we are getting out to the world with God's help. Verse 16, And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
So we know it's coming. It's been there a long time. And, of course, this work has been foretelling it for many years. But isn't it interesting that at the same time that this fanaticism is rising, there also is a call for the church of God. By Jesus Christ, for all those who have ears to hear, a call for godly, balanced, obedient religious zeal among his servants. Notice over in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. The real thing. The real zeal, so to speak. Not a fake thing, not a fanaticism, but the real deal. What godly enthusiasm is. Revelation 3 and verse 14. He says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. There is a call. Who will stand up and be on fire for God? That's what this verse is saying. Now, why is that so important? Well, because as it says, the general trend at this time in the end time is for enthusiasm to wane in the church of God. At the same time as religious fanaticism in the world is on the rise. But the last era would be a time when people are getting more comfortable, more sidetracked, more off focus. And yet there's a job to do at the end that requires focus and zeal and enthusiasm. Notice verse 17, "...because you say, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing." And know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich in white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Isn't it interesting that at the end of the time, at the, at the end time, at the end of the age, just before Christ returns, as the world's religious fanaticism is on the rise, true zealousness is at a premium and is hard to find. We ought to be zealous. But just what is enthusiasm? Brethren, is it just acting like a cheerleader? Is it just a lot of rah-rah, you know, dancing around with pom-poms? Think back to your high school days. You remember the pep rallies? Did you have pep rallies in your high school? Um, you know, everyone gathered in the, student, the, in the gym and the whole student body, and they had the paper sign there, and the football team and the basketball team come running out and charge through the paper sign, and everyone cheers and, and yells, yeah, rah-rah, and the cheerleaders are getting everyone excited. I love sports, um, like anybody. But, you know, those pep rallies seem kind of shallow. Do you ever remember thinking that? It was just a lot of fluff. Is that enthusiasm and zeal? Or is it something more than that? It's important to know, because not only do the 
great leaders of business and industry and society say so. But at the very end of the age, Jesus Christ himself says, real zeal is crucial. And yet, if we're not careful, we can mistake some of the outward effects of enthusiasm for enthusiasm itself. Notice in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. What is it and how do we get it? What is real, godly, balanced, obedient enthusiasm? And how do we achieve it? Where do we find it? Second Samuel chapter 6 and verse 12. Here's a passage that is interesting in this light, I think. It says, It was told David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertains unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. Verse 13, And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. You know, we we often perhaps think of this example when thinking about enthusiasm. He danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. And with the sound of the trumpet, and as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Tremendous enthusiasm for God in his way, <clears throat> according to the, what was acceptable at that time, right? Of course, his wife didn't think that was very acceptable, as we know the story. But brethren, what was the enthusiasm here? Was it David's jumping around and leaping in the air? Only? You know, you can jump and leap around in the air even if you're not enthusiastic? Have you ever stepped on a meat bee? <laughs> we used to have a, a uh, nest of bees in a hole in our house in Sacramento, not in our house, but in our yard. And, uh, you know, before we got rid of that nest of bees, it was a real challenge to avoid that hole and not step on a meat bee. You know, you can step on a bee and be jumping and leaping around, and it has nothing to do with enthusiasm. What about when you go camping, <clears throat> if you have a campfire and the, it's kind of late and you can't see very well and you stub your toe and you fall into the coals? You step on the fire. Would that be enthusiasm to jump around? What was David's enthusiasm? That's the point. <clears throat> we read that he danced with all his might. Well, I submit to you that the significant part of his enthusiasm was, was less the he danced part and more the with all his might part, right? Dancing, yes, was an expression of his enthusiasm, but the fact that he was doing something with all his might was the crucial part. It was a matter of the heart. It was a matter of his attitude that just happened to be coming out in that example. We read his, his son, Solomon, of course, wrote in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with enthusiasm. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. In other words, approach everything in life with enthusiasm because time is short. There's no use doing anything halfway. 
Brethren, are we tapping into this wisdom of even secular men, but more importantly, Jesus Christ himself at the end of the age? Notice First Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 2. Because here's another example of David when he expressed a lot of enthusiasm, but maybe not in such an outward way as the other one we just read of. First Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 2. Do you remember the story when David asked to, that he was going to build the temple? And at first Nathan said, go, uh, do all that's in your heart. Then he came back later and said, no, God said, you, you won't. Your son will. What did David do? You know, he could have just kind of sulked the rest of his life. I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. I didn't get to have that role that I wanted. I didn't get to write my name in the concrete, you know, my initials and and the date at the temple. But he didn't do that. Instead, he said, okay, if I can't do that, what's the next best thing I can do? What's the the other thing I can do to support someone else doing what I wanted to do? And that's exactly what he did for the rest of his life with all of his might. First Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 2. It says, David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he set masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails for the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. That's a lot of brass without weight beyond counting. They stopped counting after a certain point. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Now, it doesn't say he was leaping and dancing, does it? He might have, but it doesn't say that. The point is, you can express enthusiasm in a lot of different ways. The activity really is less important than the heart and the attitude behind it. How much of that attitude do we have, brethren? We all have it to varying degrees, but it's something we all need to cultivate and nurture and and nourish to grow more in as well, especially when it comes to God's way of life. Enthusiasm for God. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. Here's another example. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse, verse 1. Paul wrote, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, you may be ready, lest aptly if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that we say not ye should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof you had noticed before that the same might be ready, as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. It's a fact of life, isn't it? It's a law of the universe. Whatever we put into life, we get out of it. If we put a lot into life, we get a lot out of it. If we just kind of half-heartedly approach life, well, we'll get a half-hearted result, right? Even secular, self-centered men have figured this out, this principle. It just works. Well, the same works with our approach to God. It's about attitude. Verse 7, Every man according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think of my dad when I read this because I think he enjoyed quoting this and pointing out that the Greek word means hilaros or giving hilariously, which is very difficult for a Scotsman to part with his money hilariously. <clears throat> but when you give your tithe or offering, do you do it cheerfully? Let's say cheerfully, not hilariously. That's a little hard to grasp. Do you do it cheerfully? You know, godly enthusiasm is not just about obedience, is it? It's about being obedient and being cheerful about it at the same time, right? If we are obedient just because God has us in a headlock and is squeezing more pennies out of us, you know, one more, one more, one more. Is that what God is looking for? When you really think about it, this is an incredibly difficult measure to stand up, to measure ourselves up to. Not just obedience, but changing our heart and our mind to actually enjoy obeying God, even when it's hard. Sometimes it's not hard. There are some areas that we're not tested on. But other areas, it's a very difficult test. Have you ever been in a situation, perhaps a conflict, with another person, you finally grudgingly admit the other person is right. In this one case, they were right. It's rare, but, you know, they're, they're right in this one case. Um, but you've eaten crow, and crow doesn't taste very good. It goes down really hard. Kind of hard to be cheerful about eating crow, isn't it? It's about all we can do just to choke it down. We don't really feel too happy about it. We've said we admit we're wrong, and let's move on, right? But yet we are called for much, much more. Especially when we're, it comes to, do with, comes to deal with our relationship with God. We're not just called to do the right. We are called to be happy about doing the right. And overjoyed and positive and cheerful while we're doing it, not grudgingly, not dragging our feet, even if it hurts. I remember when we were children, sometimes we would get into arguments with each other five children, that's kind of natural. Uh, but our parents would make us say we're sorry. But what was worse sometimes while we had to say we're sorry, horror of horrors, we actually had to hold hands sometimes or uh, hug or even give each other a kiss. It was terrible. <clears throat> but, you know, if we kind of shot a, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, and walked away, that wasn't good enough. It's like, no, say it again and mean it this time. Have you ever noticed that parents seem to have an internal sincerity meter almost? <laughs> and they make you say it over and over until you mean it. 
Brethren, isn't that what God is looking for too? What good is it to Him if we go through life complying and obeying, but not really internalizing with enthusiasm to really want it with all of our hearts? That's why we're here, isn't it? He's after our heart. He's changing our heart. He's changing the way we think. And one of the ways that we change is being enthusiastic about God's way, not just being compliant about God's way. And each one of us are tested in different ways on this. <clears throat> Notice in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse, verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse Verse 1. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. This is in particular for the elders, Peter was writing. But let's apply it to every one of us in the body. We all are placed in the body by God. Whatever role we play, every member that God has placed, we all are together. Verse 2, he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, not because someone has you in a headlock, but willingly, voluntarily, because you want to. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. God is leading us to the point, all of us, where we will do what he says because we want to, not just because we have to. Because we have to is a good starting point, but he's leading us to because we want to. We're all challenged in different ways on that. You know, showing enthusiasm and getting out of our comfort zone, not just grudgingly, but voluntarily, might mean volunteering for a crew when a need is announced. It might mean that if we do volunteer, we are diligent to show up when we said we would. That's enthusiasm. You see, it's not just being a cheerleader. And maybe our concept of enthusiasm is skewed because we just think of the pom-poms and the pep rally, and that's enthusiasm. Actually, in some ways, it takes more drive and enthusiasm to maintain a less... uh, outward, but steady intensity over the long haul, right? Rather than just a few minutes or a few days or a few months. In fact, Edward B. Butler said, every man is enthusiastic at times. One man has enthusiasm for 30 minutes, another for 30 days, but it's the man who has it for 30 years who makes a success of his life. Now, of course, what we are preparing for is to have it forever, to be excited and to be thrilled about God's way of life for all eternity. That's what we're here for. You know, a lot of people in the local area sacrifice quietly without a lot of fanfare or a lot of crashing of cymbals. But please don't make the mistake of ever thinking that quiet service doesn't require enthusiasm because it does. It's an amazing thing, too, when we take a bit of ownership and responsibility ourselves for the working of the whole, and we do our job in our area cheerfully and willingly. What an incredible effect it has on the whole. 
even in morale. You know, we all know, we've heard this many times, our attitudes are contagious, whether positive or negative, and we all play a part in developing the morale and the mood of whatever group we're in, right? Alan Cox said, Enthusiasm reflects confidence, spreads good cheer, raises morale, inspires associates, arouses loyalty, and laughs at adversity. It is beyond price. You can't put a price on it because it comes from the heart. Just getting involved and staying involved and helping wherever we can is an aspect of enthusiasm. You know, another way of expressing enthusiasm is simply coming to church, simply showing up. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10, we may think this is overly simplistic, but let's look at what the scriptures say about it and how important it would be as the end approaches, when enthusiasm is waning, except for the fanatic type in the world, you know, the Muslims, the the so-called Christian world, when real, true, godly, genuine enthusiasm is rare. Notice what it says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. What was the ultimate goal from the beginning? Not just compliance, but perfection. What does that mean? Perfection of the heart, that we not just obey, but we love to obey. That's the perfection. Mature and enthusiastic support. That's priceless. Why? Because it can only be created with God's help, with God's Spirit, by the willing support and the willing voluntary acquiescence of the one who it's being created in. That's the one thing God can't create by fiat, his character. Verse 2, For then would they have they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of Bulls and goats should take away sins. Verse 5, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. Christ set the example of not just following the law, but willingly, voluntarily laying down his life as we heard in the sermonette today. embracing the will of God, no matter what the pain would involve for him personally. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 15, Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. In their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, God says he wants us to come to him with enthusiasm, with boldness. Don't hold back. Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. You know, this word provoke is interesting. It's a Greek word which is the source of the English word paroxysm, which literally means to irritate or excite, to literally sharpen excessively. We are to have a part in hopefully exciting one another and less of the irritating one another part. But that's what we're here for. And once in a while, perhaps, even kind of nudging a friend a little bit closer to the right direction if they are going the wrong direction in the right way. Verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now again, what is, what is he saying about the state of enthusiasm at the end? That it would be on the wane. And even church attendance would be an expression of the lack of enthusiasm among some. And yet an expression of the wholehearted enthusiasm of others who see the importance of being with the body and the family every week, week in, week out. One of the ways that we maintain our enthusiasm is simply coming to church in a time when there are more reasons than ever to stay home, right? It's easier than ever to stay home. And yet the more we separate ourselves from contact and assembling, the weaker our endurance gets, the less our enthusiasm is being restored and renewed. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. What a blessing it is to be here with our family, isn't it, together? Isn't it the same every week? You come to church, and by the time you go home, you're energized, you're excited, you're electrified, you're refilled with God's Spirit from the messages, from the fellowship, from being with one another, our family, which in a real sense, we have a deeper connection with one another here than our blood relatives. Because our connection, of course, here is the Holy Spirit. How important is it that we just show up? Shows our enthusiasm for God, our chance to worship before the King, the King of the whole universe, right in this room. The being that we will come face to face with in a few short years. How many years do we have left? We don't know, but the span of history, when you consider the span of history, it's very, very short. And we're going to see him face to face, Jesus Christ. We see that. But right now, before we see him face to face, we're still worshiping him today and every week. He is here guiding the service with the Father. It's just not the same to be off 
by ourselves worshiping God. We need each other. We need to be here. Cast, verse 35, not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draws back, if any man doesn't go all out for God, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draws back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now of all times is not the time to draw back or let down or retreat into ourselves. It's time to buy into the program more fully and more completely, isn't it? in whatever challenges each one of us are facing in our individual lives. Even when we have trials, even when we have setbacks, even when we are let down. Winston Churchill once said, success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? But we just have to keep going. In fact, it's interesting that our enthusiasm is what helps us keep going, helps us get through. We can't give up. President Theodore Roosevelt once said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is not effort without error and shortcomings but who does actually strive to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Of course, in our goal, we don't have to fail. The only one that can take us out of the kingdom is ourselves so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Cold and timid souls. Kind of sounds like Laodiceans, doesn't it? Philadelphians stay in the game, in the arena. They keep going. They keep growing. They keep learning. They keep working and keep focused. And they try to help others maintain enthusiasm as well. You know, criticism is one of the things that can just really cut down on enthusiasm very, very quickly. In the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff in Love, Simple Ways to Nurture and Strengthen Relationships by Richard Carlson and Christine Carlson. There's a chapter on avoid correcting each other. And it starts out this way. He says, We were in the lobby of a health club when a woman said to her husband, See you later, honey. I've got to get home because I'd like to make you and the kids that casserole dish you love so much. It takes more than an hour, and I want to have plenty of time. When I heard her say this, I thought to myself, how thoughtful. My heart sank, however, when I heard her husband's response. Without even thinking about it, he fired back, no, it doesn't. It only takes 50 minutes. Now think about that for a few minutes, for a few seconds. Correcting others on details when the details really don't matter all that much going on he says a week or so later i was in a restaurant when i overheard a man telling a story to his wife and another couple at the table next to us obviously i wasn't paying much attention to the details but he was talking for quite some time all i heard was the last sentence which he said with a satisfied chuckle his punchline was 
We were just getting ready to leave when about ten people cut in front of us, end quote. It seemed like a good ending to a story, and I found myself wishing I'd heard the whole thing. But before their friends had a chance to finish laughing, his wife blurted out, There weren't ten people, John. There were only six. Okay. Well, ladies are capable of this as well, right? He says, Obviously, there are, these are somewhat obnoxious examples of the tendency many of us have to correct one another, particularly those we are closest to. Yet they demonstrate how disrespectful and potentially damaging this habit can be to the quality of a relationship. In both of these examples and so many others, the correction was absolutely unnecessary. Now, brethren, how much can overcriticalness destroy enthusiasm? Are we in our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, are we enthusiasm builders or do we tear it down inadvertently he says the the woman in the health club was reaching out to her family she was taking her valuable time and using it to express her love through her cooking she was filled with enthusiasm as she proudly shared her plan with her husband in return he shot her down there's no way to tell why he said what he did my guess is he meant no harm and didn't even know he said it but think about how it must have felt to her What possible good did his comment make, even if he was technically correct regarding the cooking time of the casserole? So what? Who cares whether it took an hour and 15 or 55 minutes? So what? She was excited about telling him that she needed to go home to make his favorite dish. And yet, brethren, how many times do we do that? I've done that. I'm not going to tell you how many times, but we all do that. Rather than feeling appreciated, she probably felt minimized and deflated. The same holds true with the wife who corrected her husband in front of their friends in the restaurant. You know, it's especially humiliating in front of friends for men. Again, if you asked her, I doubt very much she would admit to ruining his story and his enjoyment and making him look a little foolish on purpose. Instead, it was an innocent jab that took place because she hadn't taken the time to reflect on the destructive nature of correcting someone. Who cares how many people actually cut him off? What difference does it make? Excellent point, brethren. As we go through life and in our relationships, are we so particular about the details that we're willing to be critical of one another when a little bit of support, especially when someone's vulnerable, they have extended themselves you know, in front of others. And do all we focus on is shooting them down on picking out the details? rather than using that moment to to support them. Maybe tell them later (laughs) if the story was wrong. Obviously, an isolated correction, he says, isn't going to make or break an otherwise nurturing relationship. We've all done it more than once. And keep in mind, if your partner corrects you every once in a while, you don't have to think of it as an emergency. It's not. Remember, the goal is to stop sweating the small stuff. However... You have to wonder why a person would continue to share stories, dreams, plans, and adventures with someone who is in the habit of correcting them. And that's true. After a while, if someone you loved kept up the corrections, you'd become cautious and guarded, perhaps even distant. The lesson here is simple. No one appreciates being corrected. In fact, most people resent it. So unless there's a really good reason or you're dealing with an extremely important issue, it's a good rule of thumb to keep your corrections to yourself, he says. 
Your partner will be able to share with you freely and openly, which will help keep your relationship fresh and alive. Good advice, I think. In our families, in our marriages, at work, in the church, how much are we really trying and thinking about helping each other to be enthusiastic? Not just in that area, but this is just one small example. How about at work? Are we enthusiastic in our work? Do we show up on time? If we say that we'll be there, are we there? Are we diligent? Do we go the extra mile? Even if we don't agree with everything our bosses do. Enthusiasm, very important. Where does it come from, though? Well, if we go back to the definition, there's another interesting thing about the definition of enthusiasm. Again, from the American Heritage Dictionary, of the English language, it says here in word history, enthusiasm first appeared in English in 1603 with the meaning possession by a god, small g. The source of the word is the Greek enthusiasmos, which ultimately comes from the adjective entheos, having the god within, formed from en, which means in or within, and theos, which means god. Over time, the meaning of enthusiasm became extended to rapturous inspiration like that caused by a god to an overly confident or delusory belief that one is inspired by god to ill-regulated religious fervor religious extremism and eventually to the familiar sense craze excitement strong liking for something now one can have an enthusiasm for almost anything from water skiing to fast food without religion entering into it at all that's how the the meaning of, the, of this word changed over time. But originally to the Greeks, it was a kind of a, a rapturous experience, really. It was possession, uh, demonic possession. Of course, that's not what we're talking about here. God's word says the spirits of the prophets are subjects, subject to the prophets, not out of control, not wild and delusionary. But it is interesting. When you look at the actual word itself, it really does have the roots meaning en and theos, or God in us. God in us, the root of the word enthusiasm. So for us today, where does real enthusiasm for a Christian come from? Is it just something we kind of work up ourselves by bringing ourselves into a frenzy, emotionalism? Or is it about allowing God to live in us more fully? It is, is it about going on a deeper and deeper level of asking and beseeching God to live his life in us, put his thoughts in us, his spirit and his mind in us, his energy, his excitement, his focus? Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, notice. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Where does godly enthusiasm come from? Well, it comes from God because it has to do with God in us. 2 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, 
To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of you in my prayers night and day. He said, Timothy, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about your needs. I'm thinking about your, your, your concerns. I'm trying to inspire you in your struggles to be at your best, to grow and overcome, to not get discouraged, to focus on the excitement of the job that you have to do. That's what Paul was writing for. Verse 4, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned love, faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that in you also. Wherefore, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Use it. Stir it up. Ask God for more. God is the one who stirs up the Spirit in us. It's not just something we kind of work up ourselves. And we do it by being close to God, talking to Him, asking for His help, being motivated by the things that He thinks about, not languishing in self-doubt. He's saying, Timothy, God will give you all the power and drive you need. Just ask Him for it and go forward in faith. Verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began." Where does the zeal to love and worship God come from? Where does the zeal to support the work come from? To get involved on the local area, to pay our tithes and offerings, to show up at church? Where does that zeal come from? Not just within ourselves, but it comes from the mind and spirit and zeal of God and being in tune with his plan that began before the world began, because that's what he's excited about. Philippians chapter 2 and verse verse 1. Philippians chapter 2 and verse, verse 1. He says, If there is therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says, if you love one another, lift each other up, support each other, don't criticize each other, help each other to be more enthusiastic, to have the right kind of zeal, to have the right kind of focus, not by harping at each other, but by helping each other. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of God in us. How important is that? And he will live his life in us. His mind, his humility, his righteousness, but also his zeal for life. His zeal for the plan which is life for eternity, the greatest life. Are we excited about that? 
Or are the bills and the diapers and the car repairs and the job and the finances and the personal problems, are they crowding out the excitement of what we're here for? And all the things we have to do, the little trials, the big trials, and we're forgetting that through Jesus Christ in us, we can see a glimpse of eternity, of living forever. Are we thrilled about that? Now, when we tap into the Spirit of God, we are connecting to a power of unbelievable and unlimited proportions, aren't we? And we're not just downloading information. You know, with computers these days, we can think of downloads and you get an email with an attachment. You know, the, the way that we learn and we learn in the church, we're not just downloading information into our brains, knowledge. We're actually tapping into the thoughts and the mind and the heart and the way of using that information. What an amazing change it is, isn't it? When we glimpse that, when we take a few steps in that direction and we see that, how exciting it is. Growth. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. <clears throat> Brethren, we all need to go forward in that. We all have varying degrees of enthusiasm, but we really where godly enthusiasm comes from is from tapping into God himself and allowing him to live his life in us. And we all certainly need to grow in that. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, brethren, if there is power in enthusiasm itself, which some of the great leaders of time have said there is, imagine the power of the zeal and enthusiasm of God himself who can accomplish anything he wants who says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this of establishing his kingdom, of spreading it throughout all the universe. You know, when God is enthusiastic about something, we better get enthusiastic about it or get out of the way, right? Because it's going to happen. And what a tremendous thing that he is allowing us to share in that that we can tap into the being who made the oceans and seas and planets and stars and moon and sun and has the power of the natural elements, the typhoons, the hurricanes, the astral bodies. And yet we can tap into that mind and that power and that zeal. And we can see a glimpse of where we're going. What a privilege it is that God is allowing us to have a small portion of his mind. And, you know, we only get a glimpse of it. And then we get distracted by something over here and the bills and the other things. we just got to keep going back. We have a long way to go, but what an incredible journey that we are on. Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. God is allowing us to have His mind. And how exciting is that? Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. He says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. One of the things that Jesus Christ will do since he's living in us is get us excited about the things that he's excited about. Not just compliance, but cheerful compliance, excited compliance, being happy about doing the right thing. And the closer to him we are, the more of his mind we have, the more exciting we, excited we are and the more exciting his plan is and the more thrilled we are to be living this way of life. And they have the opportunity to know his way of life and to have the wherewithal to live this way of life that he's given us the power to do that. You know, Dennis Waitley, an American personal development expert, said, Get excited and enthusiastic about your own dream. This excitement is like a forest fire. You can smell it, taste it, and see it from a mile away. And isn't that true about our dream? He talks about in Hebrews, if you have tasted the power of the worlds to come, and we have tasted it. And it's exciting. And it's thrilling. We just have to continue to tap that source. It's powerful. It drives us. It energizes us. He says in verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. We are going to suffer. But look at what we're being offered. God's Spirit gives us a glimpse of it. And again, how much zeal and excitement did Jesus Christ have to accomplish His purpose? How much drive and zeal is backing up His plan? And the more we walk with Him, the more we talk with Him, the more we spend time with Him, the more we're filled with His Spirit, the more we are filled with the excitement of His plan and of where we're going and the glimpse of that. You know, Paul was filled with that. Verse 18, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, how in the world could Paul say that? When you think of the list of things that he had suffered, being stoned, being beaten, being whipped, being shipwrecked, just think of the things that this man had gone through. The only way he could say that is if he glimpsed something better, right? Is if he had Jesus Christ living in him so that he could see it. And it was real to him. And everything he had gone through, no matter how painful and terrible that was, he saw it in the right perspective. He said, it's not worthy to be compared because I have seen the future. And it's exciting and it's worth it. Verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he? Verse 34. That condemns. It is Christ that died. Yes, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, when we have God's mind, when we are walking with him, when we see what he says, sees, when we have the zeal that he has, how can we be separated from him? Because he's in us. He's living in us. We're the only ones that can separate us from him. He will help us to overcome any obstacle to get us into his kingdom and help others to get there as well. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How important is enthusiasm? You know, the great leaders of society have said it's all important. But when we look at our Christian walk, it becomes even more crucial, doesn't it? How can we possibly overcome all the trials that we're going to have in this life without it, without God's enthusiasm? Because it helps us to get over the trials and get through the trials because we have this burning desire to make it, to be there, to help others to be there, to accomplish the work. In one of the most important military campaigns of the American Revolution, when the Ohio River Valley was in jeopardy, a man named Lieutenant Colonel George Rogers Clark led a desperate but daring attack on the British garrison at Vincennes on the border between Indiana and Illinois. The story is told in a number of books. One of them is Long Knife and others that you can check into about George Rogers Clark. The British had retaken the fort under Lieutenant Governor Henry Hamilton. Hamilton was waiting until the spring to take Kaskaskia and Cahokia, two other forts in the Illinois area, that together would control all the river traffic up and down the Ohio River Valley. The time was the winter of 1779, The following spring, the British were going to retake the other forts that the Americans had gotten, and it would be a devastating blow to the American Revolution and could turn the tide of history. In fact, as the story goes, if George Rogers Clark hadn't done what he did, some believe that the Ohio River Valley River, the Ohio River would have been the U.S.-Canadian border. So all of you in Canada, we would have... Many of us would have been Canadians as well. But the biography of George Rogers Clark states this from the Indiana State Museum. Clark realized that his small force could not hold the Illinois posts if Hamilton was given sufficient time to gather his forces. 
And so he boldly decided to move on Vincennes immediately during the depth of winter. He wrote to Patrick Henry saying that if he failed, this country and also Kentucky is lost. On February 6, 1779, Clark outfitted and supplied the armed galley Willing, it's called the Willing, interesting name, which was to rendezvous with the rest of the force on the Wabash downriver from Vincennes. Mounted on a handsome horse, Clark led 172 men, nearly half of which were French volunteers from Kaskaskia. They marched the 240 miles through flooded country, often shoulder-high in water. Now, mind you, this is February. Now, it can get cool down here in North Carolina, freezing even. But in Illinois in February, 240 miles, often shoulder-high in water, very little supplies, very little shelter. It's hard to imagine right now. Even if we had Gore-Tex and, you know, all these high-tech camping equipment. Sending out hunting parties for food and sleeping on the bare ground, it required 17 days to make what was normally a five- or six-day trip. 17 days. Almost three weeks. Imagine, put yourself in, in this predicament. Wet, freezing wet, dead of winter, cold, very little to eat, nowhere really to sleep. Sending out hunting parties for food on, and sleeping on the bare ground. It required 17 days to make what was normally a five- or six-day trip. Clark kept the spirits of the men high, encouraging them to sing and regaling them with the actions of an antique drummer boy who floated by on his drum. Interesting anecdote. The precarious situation they were in because... The, with that being the one thing, one of the things that helped the spirits of the men high just to be laughing at this fellow who had a drum and he was floating by in it. You realize the situation they were in. For 17 days they marched, swam, clawed through wet, muddy, and miserable conditions, the whole time being vulnerable to attack. If the British, who were warm and dry and well-fed in their garrison, if they would have known that Clark was on his way, they would have been sitting ducks. No way, really, to, to defend. Vulnerable to attack. Well, you can read the whole story. And the desperate conditions they were in, the memoirs of Colonel Clark, and the only thing that held them together was the will and the enthusiasm of one man who kept the spirits of those men going. And any moment, any hint of hesitation or doubt on his part, they would have gone. They would have deserted. In fact, some came close to it sometimes. He says on February 23rd, they surprised Vincennes. Clark ordered that all the company's flags be marched back and forth behind a slight rise to convince the British there were 600 men rather than under 200. You know, the problem was not just getting there, but then attacking the fort because they were outnumbered. So he used some intelligence and creativity. He says... They opened fire on the fort with such accuracy that the British were prevented from opening their, up, opening their gun ports. On the morning of the third day, February 25th, Hamilton surrendered and was sent to Williamsburg as a prisoner. The British never regained control of these posts, and the Americans claimed in the Old Northwest served as the basis of the cession of these lands to the United States at the Treaty of Paris in 1783. The British withdrew from Detroit, and the Great Lakes became the northern boundary of the United States. 
change the tide of history. He, he lost not one man. And it really is, as they say, one of, one of, the, incredibly, one of the incredible feats of American history. It fell on the shoulders of one man who had to instill enthusiasm in a group of men who were starving, shivering. You know, his health never recovered. The rest of his life he carried illnesses, apparently, because of that experience of the deprivation. And yet one, one source records some of the letters of some of his men. It says, letters and diaries of members of his detachment show that he enjoyed an unusual rapport with his men, inspiring them to believe that they, even in small numbers, were unbeatable because of his enthusiasm and his focus. Now, brethren, we have such a man at the helm, our captain, Jesus Christ, who is not just one who will inspire us to believe we are unbeatable or he is unbeatable, but a being who became a man who is God, who is in fact unbeatable, who guarantees victory. You know, George Rogers Clark could not guarantee victory. So they had to go in faith on his ability and his judgment. But Jesus Christ, as our captain, does guarantee victory. And with his zeal, he says he will accomplish what he set out to do. Brethren, how much of that are we tapping into? Let's go in conclusion to John chapter 17 and verse 20. The importance and power of enthusiasm cannot be overstated. Are you enthusiastic? And again, I'm not just talking about a rah-rah, pom-poms, you know, pep rally kind of thing. It's something in the heart. It has a tremendous effect on our spiritual growth qualifying for God's kingdom and doing the work here at the end time. John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, this is Christ, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one. Perfect being that we not just obey God, but we have a perfect heart to love and be happy about and be cheerful about and be thrilled about obeying God. That we have an opportunity to learn and follow the God of the entire universe and be a part of his family. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared unto them your name and will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me, may be in them, and I in them. You notice the last three words of this whole discourse in the book of John was that Christ would be in us. God in us. 
what is necessary for us to accomplish our potential, be in God's kingdom and to do the work and be a part of this incredible plan that God is working out here below, Christ in us. Brethren, enthusiasm is all important for any goal to do great things. But what greater thing can there be than for God to develop the potential for man, our potential in us and bring us into his very kingdom and all mankind ultimately, those who want to, through his power, through his undying enthusiasm, through his endless zeal. With that, we and all those who are a part of his plan can endure to the end. Do you have godly enthusiasm?